Hey, good morning. Welcome to Lion and Lamb. It's great to see some people I haven't seen for months and even some new faces. Uh, I think it's appropriate uh, today that we open in prayer, so please join me. Lord God, these are very, very difficult times on a number of fronts. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bring your spirit among us, that you would bring a spirit of understanding and patience and repentance and forgiveness, reconciliation and peace. And we know that those things are only possible through you. And those are the things for which we ask today and continuing on. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, um, over the last few years, I've been going through some chapters and, and books, um, what we would call an exegetical study, which I'm not a, I'm not a scholar or whatever, but, uh, you know, verse by verse. And, and uh, uh, I decided that I would like to do something different, which we call a topical study, a short series for the summer. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed in the last few years is the huge cultural shift that we've experienced, much like when I was a teenager. Uh, it's affected not only the culture, but the church, and particularly the relationships between those different cultures. And so, uh, there are likely several factors running concurrently to cause that division, Satan being chief among them, and one factor, or one of Satan's tools, is the media and technology. And I'm not saying that the media and technology are inherently evil, but like any tool, they can be used for good or for evil. And so if the church is to draw others to Christ, it's, it really seems like we must reconcile some of these conflicts, stop arguing among ourselves, and frankly, get our own act together. And we want to explore how we can understand each other and our respective cultures. And the slide and your handout should reflect the goals for the whole series, and we hope we can stick with that. It's important always, and this is something that doesn't happen a lot of times in conversations these days, that we define our terms. So when we use the term church, we're not talking about lion and lamb necessarily, just lion and lamb, or even the church in Topeka, but the church universal. All true believers who are now, whoever were, or whoever will be followers of Christ. Now, the word culture is a bit more broad. And essentially, or in general, it's the secondary environment that mankind adds on to creation, comprising of language and habits and ideas, beliefs, customs, organization, and of course, values. And we want to, within this context, consider a couple of different types or, or strategies of culture. And if you can understand how this slide is set up, uh, first, we have horizontal, or what we might call cross-culture. This is the distinctives between concurrent cultures, often based upon country or heritage or ethnicity. So in the U.S., we're, we usually think in terms of Latino or Afro or Anglo or East Asian, and there are many others. I'm not trying to leave anybody out here. Uh, and there are, of course, many subcultures that cross over these lines. 
today, unfortunately, there are differences within these cultures that are the basis for conflict. And the church, frankly, has oftentimes played a role in that conflict. However, the church is uniquely positioned to be an example of reconciling those various cultures. If you look at the slide, the other type of culture we want to look at is vertical or generational. These are the cultures based upon time and succeeding generations. Each culture passes on or tries to pass on certain values and traditions of their culture. However, in my day, way back, old Bob Dylan sang, the, the times they are a-changing. <laughs> but that's always been the case. Uh, uh, it's not only customs and fashions, but more importantly, perspective and norms that can change, sometimes and sometimes for evil. Now, I think we all know that there's a tendency of children to challenge or reject aspects of their parents' norms and values. You know, at some point in life, it seems like all of us think uh, the older people just don't get it, creating this sort of natural generational divide. And I thought, bad, I didn't do that. But then I remembered that some when I was young sang People try to put us down talking about my generation. And if you said, who sang that, you'd be correct. It was the who who sang that. <laughs> now, who was trying to put us down? It was our parents and our grandparents' generations. And that cultural divide of generations is now highlighted by the fact that we have named our generations, okay? And I took a look at the, the, the approximate dates for these, and it suddenly occurred on, upon me that we've got kids over the span of a quarter century, and I've got kids in three different generations. Just barely, but I do. And uh, if you think that the Vincent clan all think alike, you'd be wrong. Yeah, you really would. The problem is that at times there is misunderstanding and division between generations that also divides the church. So a big part of this series will focus on how we can minimize by considering the role of culture and how it affects our views in our respective generations. We're not going to solve it by understanding, but it sure helps to understand each of the generations are affected by the interaction between their respective cultures. Children not only reject certain norms, but they also, wittingly or not, accept and adopt certain aspects of their parental culture. Uh, it has an effect we cannot deny on all of us. And Now, when you look at back at another culture or at another cross-culture, and you see evil. We should never excuse evil of any of either of those, but we need to at least understand that culture has an effect and give grace before judging those within another culture. At least we should understand that others were, why others were slow to reject certain evil ingrained in their culture that we, with 2020 hindsight, can see clearly from our vantage today. So I'm going to give you some hypotheticals today, 
uh, just to help illustrate the point. Uh, and my first one is about something that's not happened, okay? We're talking about the future, and Roe v. Wade has been reversed, okay? And we have actually developed a culture that values life, even life within the womb, the image of God. And one of your children or your grandchildren or maybe even your great-grandchildren comes to you and says, Grandpa, what did you do to protect those babies being aborted? And you respond, well, I voted for pro-life candidates. And I, I held a sign at an abortion protest at a clinic. And you might very well see her jaw drop because in her mind, this is equivalent to the Holocaust. But in your mind, you knew that that was all you could do. So you see the dissonance that can be created when we don't consider the aspects of different cultures. So a couple of questions to remember throughout this series. When a generation looks back at a previous generation, maybe it's their parents or maybe it's centuries ago, and they judge the wrong that the norms and the values of that previous generation based upon their current views, are they taking everything into account? Is there room for understanding the culture and the effect that it has on that previous generation? Is there some grace. So, for future sessions in this short series, we hope to discuss racial relations. Yeah, it's a pretty hot one. And uh, it has divided the culture and the church today. Uh, we will discuss not all, but many things sexual. Not only same-sex attraction and relationships, but gender identification and differences in pornography and how God's gift and plan for sex has been corrupted by a sinful culture. We want to talk about the sanctity of life and how a self-centered culture has led to disregard for the closest thing on earth to God, his image bearers. And lastly, yes, we want to talk about politics because that's a huge issue within the church today and between generations. And all these issues of importance, we must be honest about whether the church is influencing the culture or the culture influencing the church. So today, we're going to start with a foundation without which we cannot really have a conversation. Uh, before you can make any kind of a claim about anything or even attempt to come to an agreement within the church, we ourselves must be sure of this particular issue. Without agreement on this particular issue, the consequences are not only that we can't agree on anything, but we really have no purpose in life, and for some, even a reality, and that is the subject of truth. Rather than the famous line that you've heard in the movies, you can't handle the truth, really, it's you can't have, handle anything without the truth. The question of the existence of objective truth is not something that just came up in our age. In fact, in John 18, we read a discussion between Pilate and Jesus at his trial, where Pilate asked, so, you're a king, right? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responded, well, what is truth? Now, maybe we don't hear that question verbatim these days, but we often may hear it in more subtle ways. And some people believe that there's no such thing as objective truth. And again, it's important to define terms. Subjective here deals with personal feelings, emotions, opinions, perspective, things that we all have. But the objective is about hard facts that do not depend on personal feelings. And when applied to truth, objective truth of necessity is established outside of anybody's mind, outside of mankind, an intellect that transcends our existence and therefore applies to all mankind. If truth is subjective, on the other hand, each person can make up their own, do as they please. There'd be nothing they could say about anybody else's conduct or beliefs to call it wrong. Now, there is a philosophy out there called postmodernism that few understand, and for good reason. Uh, for our purposes today, the philosophy generally denies the existence of objective truth and even reality. Postmodernism deconstructs all objective reality, confining all truth claims to the subjective, leaving its adherents, those who say they follow it, in the words of one honest commentator, quote, lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation, unquote. I thought that was good. How can we even start a conversation with people who claim there is no such thing as truth? Now, absolute truth does not depend upon our feelings. It is so regardless of whether we feel it or believe it. Relative truth is often expressed as true for you, not for me. Who are you to judge? And the highest virtue is tolerance. Without that perspective, if you claim anything to be true, you are called intolerant and narrow-minded. So let's think about this. As you can imagine, there may be some logical problems with the denial of truth. There's this thing called the law of non-contradiction, which states that two opposite things cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. So, child comes and knocks on the door and mom comes to the door and child asks for Johnny to come out and play. Mom cannot say Johnny is out and Johnny is not out. Okay, that would violate the law of non-contradiction. Mom could say, Johnny is out playing ball, and he was not out when he slid into second base, because those latter two outs are in a different sense. You get what I mean, right? Okay, so this law is so basic, it seems self-evident. The earth cannot be both a sphere and a box, and we call these violations of the law of non-contradiction self-defeating. I put some of these on your, your handout. Uh, these are actually part of a thing that we teach to the high schoolers called the roadrunner tactic. Uh, so you cannot know the truth. That's the claim. Then how do you know that? Okay? Think about it. Okay? There are no absolute truths. And you've all heard this one. Is that absolutely true? Okay? So uh, each of these 
statements are self-defeating. They make no sense. Yet, we know that people use them all the time. People have always questioned or denied the existence of truth. Now, I want to give a caution here that tactics uh, are like a knife. They can be used for good, like in surgery, or obviously for evil. And it may not always be appropriate to use this roadrunner tactic, which maybe we'll explain the, the name in some future lesson. Uh, but there may be times when, you know, somebody says something like this, and you know that they're just really innocent and confused, and they're just repeating what somebody else said, and you may not want to come back with one of those because you don't want to lose them. On the other hand, there may be times if you don't say something, somebody's going to, they're going to lead somebody else astray, and they're going to think that you agree with him. So this may be what Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 26, when in one and in two verses, he says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, now, there's a very brief and practical disproof of postmodernism. And while some will write about this in, uh, in academic journals, I've never met anybody who lives as a postmodernist. Uh, it's like walking up and having a conversation with somebody and them saying, you know, I'm not even sure you're really here, okay? Uh, people may talk about being postmodernist, but they cannot live it out except maybe the insane. Uh, somebody might say, uh, well, it's certainly okay with me if you take my cell phone, if you think you should, because I can't say it's right or wrong. It may be wrong for me, but it's right for you under postmodernism. So uh, you know that doesn't happen. You know, if you try to take their possessions, they're going to object. So if you scratch a postmodernist on the outside, you're going to find a moralist on the inside. Uh, now, unfortunately, if they try to follow this philosophy, they are simply unaware of their presuppositions. Now, the fact that postmodernism is an extreme that I can't imagine anybody taking seriously except academics, uh, the fact that you have to be wacko to be a true postmodernist does not mean that postmodernism has no effect on the culture. Now, consider this hypo. Um, a, an inexperienced person without much direction in life who's starting to see and experience some of the pleasures of the world. Uh, and a postmodernist professor perhaps says, there are no absolutes, no truth. Well, that can be appealing. It sounds even noble, like pushing back against an overbearing moral dictator such as the church forcing its values on everybody. And that person deep down may know that it's wrong to steal and harm and murder. I mean, he may think everybody believes that, right? Not really. But let's say a Christian friend comes along who really cares about this person, and he says, hey, uh, I heard that conversation you had in the locker room the other day, and I was wondering if we could sit down and just have a talk about what you said concerning conquering all those women in bed. And he's, this is, it's quite convenient for him to be able to say, whoa, bro, 
Don't get judgmental with me. It may be wrong for you, but not for me. Okay? You see, he's just parroting what his professor said. This is just another version of Pilate's sarcastic question. What is truth? Now, some may say that society or the culture sets the moral standards for the people of its culture. Now, when we compare cultures, we do see various moral practices within different cultures. Take polygamy, for one. Cross-culturally, we see it in some Muslim countries today. We see it, uh, a lot of it, in the ancient Old Testament passages. Is that because the culture set the standards, or is it because changing standards gradually took hold and then won out and formed part of that culture? I suspect both may be true. All cultures do have norms and standards that are eventually challenged, and I suspect Satan uses those differences, including the natural, as in sin nature, tendency of some young to rebel or reject the values of the older generation uh, to his advantage. Uh, young people can perceive inconsistencies and hypocrisies, and sometimes it's real. And they can swing to the other side. An example, when a child sees infidelity among his parents or parents who fail or refuse to work out their problems, and the strife within the family, they may very well start to question God's plan for lifelong commitment to one person. And with that commitment torn down in their mind, so goes honesty. I mean, a vow is worthless. The most important people in their lives have dishonored their vow. Another example. The quest for economic equality of rich and poor through socialism and its successor communism has, by conservative estimates, resulted in the death of over 100 million people over the ages. Now, one would think that would be fair warning against this particular governmental regime, yet several studies show support for socialism trending in upwards in the U.S., particularly among the young half of whom have no idea about the death tolls of Mao Zedong and Stalin for the cause of economic equality. Now, we used to say that those who ignore history are destined to repeat it, yet we see today a man who almost became the presidential nominee of his party, and he still could, espousing socialist views and proposals with the younger members of Congress cheering him on and making actual proposals for law along the same lines. So we cannot deny that within the last few years, socialist ideology has gained a foothold in the United States. Now, nowhere is this shift more evident than in that setting where the young, for the first time in their lives, will go off without the guidance and influence of their parents and their values the college campus, okay? Uh, in 1987, Alan Bloom, not a believer, but a philosopher, wrote a book called Closing of the American Mind, where he argued that most of university students had closed their minds off to the possibility of absolute truth. 
In other words, when their professor argued for total open-mindedness as to all values, the result was a very real closed-mindedness, undermining their critical thinking and eliminating that which defines our culture. So what? You and I, we get to worship, we get to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and fellowship with our friends, and yeah, they decide to jump in a handbasket destined for hell. I can't change them. Why should I care? Well, let's talk about why we should care about culture. Paul tells us that we have a special mission while we're in our earth suits. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God yourself. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Now, part of that ministry of reconciliation is both to know and to proclaim the truth against false philosophies and worldviews. Paul goes on later in that letter, though we walk in the flesh, we are now not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. So, We've got a mission, and we've got a method. Are we carrying out our mission? And honestly, the real question for Christians in the church today becomes, who's influencing whom? Now, we know that Satan is the prince of the world. Should we just give up then? Or should we be salt and light? The answer to that question has consequences beyond ourselves, particularly for the young. In the United States, a thousand unwed teens will become pregnant. 500 youth will begin using illicit drugs. And six teens will commit suicide. In the next month? No. Week? No. In the next 24 hours. The moral problem of the absence of objective truth is that life becomes meaningless. Now, when faced with this problem, we as Christians should not fall apart because we know who writes the last chapter. We are not to fear or worry because we trust in him. On the other hand, if the Titanic is going down, and you just lay there on your deck chair in your Bermuda shorts and your sunglasses instead of helping the women and children into the lifeboats, what good are you? What good am I? So on certain matters, there is a case 
for a sense of urgency. Somehow we got to balance responding with calm and trust in our culture, to our cultural decline, but respond effectively and urgently because we are commanded to love others. Absolutes that we have always stood upon are largely ignored today as relative. Why is that happening in our culture? I think the most basic linchpin in this downward spiral is the debate of whether there's objective truth, transcendent or above mankind, or if truth is relative, that mankind simply makes it up as he goes. Yet we know that the world has a problem. That's to be expected. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Francis Schaeffer put it this way in his Christian Manifesto in 2005. He said that the basic problem with American Christians since the early 19th or 20th century in regard to culture is that Christians have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally, abortion. But they have not this, seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in, in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. What we must understand is that different worldviews really do bring forth with inevitable certainty not only personal differences, but also total differences in regard to society, government, and law, a.k.a. culture. Essentially what Schaefer is saying is that the church sat on its deck chairs or its pews and allowed it to happen without much dissent. The root of the problem, from our perspective, looking at the beam in our own eyes, lies within the church. Now, even though we know we are of God, God's people simply do not know how or what to think. And that's reflected in the general populace where 91% of teens and two-thirds of all adults do not believe in absolute truth, according to some studies. So, how do we tear down strongholds, destroy arguments, and lofty opinions? One approach taken by C.S. Lewis was to start slowly and build a foundation so others can understand based upon reason and logic. During World War II, difficult time, uh, Lewis gave a radio broadcast, which was the primary medium in, in, that, in that era, to a populace that was under the imminent threat of invasion by the Germans from just across the English Channel. And those broadcasts became the content of his book, Mere Christianity. He started by laying the foundation in his own style with very practical human observations about the nature of mankind. He said there are two odd things about the human race. First, we all have this inborn sense of what, how we ought to obey the, the right and the wrong, a conscience. However, secondly, all people know that they do not always do what they know they ought to do. 
And so this law of human nature says we know that what we ought to do is not what is always convenient or even profitable as the right thing often requires sacrifice. It may hurt to tell the truth. It may be to your financial detriment to return an overpayment. So if one asks why we ought to follow that law that may result in loss to self in order to help out society, and then the answer is so that society can be benefited, that seems a little circular in reasoning, if you catch my drift. Lewis was simply clearing away the, tr- the brush and laying the foundation for the Brits to understand that in order to know why we have this moral compass within requires a reason outside of oneself, something above mankind. In short, we cannot have any morality without God. Mankind does not always follow that moral compass, but without a magnetic north, a source of truth and good, you cannot even begin to know the directions of good and evil. And then he builds upon that to find the necessity for God, the role of sin, and finally the need for a savior. Now, while Lewis used reason, uh, Paul gives us another way to tear down these opinions and arguments in Romans 1 called the general revelation or creation. And there he said, starting in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And of course, we know in all of this that that's general revelation. There's this special revelation, which is the word of God, and it has to be used to bring clarity to our reality. It says, the author of Hebrews says, The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, yes, everybody is without excuse for disbelief in God if they simply look at the stars, look at the creation around them, or at the incredibly complex microscopic world through a microscope. However, If someone you know does look and still has questions or doubts, just they don't get it. Do you stop there? Do you say, well, too bad for you? Reason is a legitimate means of communicating the gospel. And in fact, one could say you cannot present the gospel without reason. Chuck Colson was a hardened lawyer who had been a a U.S. Marine officer, and those skills got him to the top. He became known as the hatchet man 
for the corrupt administration of President Richard Nixon and led Colson to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. But it was later a friend of his who shared with him a copy of Mere Christianity that caused Colson to be convicted and converted. He was convicted and converted by reason. Colson then went on to establish the Ministry of Prison Fellowship, became a great Christian thinker and apologist. So we can help others discover truth using reason and logic. Some people have said all religions lead to heaven. We're not going to go into it now, but that violates another law of logic called the law of the excluded middle. Jesus, who the world would claim is the founder of the Christian religion, says no one comes to the Father except through him, Jesus. So it cannot be true that all religions lead to heaven. If one of those religions, and there are others, claim, as Christ does, that they are the only way to heaven through him. Now, the impact of denying the existence of God really might not be apparent to the denier, but if you care about a person, you can lovingly help them see that without God, without a law above man, there is no purpose for our lives. We are all without any moral constraint, and no one can say that any horrific act of violence or injustice is wrong. For truth to be anything but subjective feeling, opinions of the powerful, and whatever else is convenient, it must come from a source above mankind. Therefore, those who believe in objective truth conclude there is a truth giver and a morality maker, somebody above us all. Christians call this truth giver God, Godhead, or the Trinity. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about belief that. Belief that there must be truth and consequently must be God. Belief that there is truth is logically seeing the necessity of the source of truth, right and wrong, leading to a belief that there must be that truth maker. On the other hand, Christians have belief in truth and the God of the Bible. Belief in God is actually having a personal relationship with the God in his three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when that seed of that belief in is planted, it results in a sprout that recognizes the nature of God as perfect righteousness and holiness, and that we as sinners are not worthy to be in his presence. That leads to repentance and a hunger for that same righteousness. And by understanding God's perfect love and his free gift of salvation brought on by Christ's payment for the debt of sin that you and I cannot pay. There is forgiveness of sin and salvation unto eternal life. It is that personal relationship that leads to a growing plant of submission and obedience, not out of compulsion, but out of thankfulness for this life given eternally that we did not deserve so that we might glorify and enjoy him forever. Now, why do we in the church concern ourselves with these logical arguments and this stuff that falls in the dry and academic category of apologetics? 
Isn't faith good enough? Isn't salvation really a heart issue rather than a head issue? Well, we can certainly say that belief that God exists does not save a person. As our relationship with Christ is compared to a marriage, one can look at a member of the opposite sex and say, that would make a wonderful spouse. But if one is not willing to believe in that person and commit to that person for life, there is no marriage. Question. Don't you have to believe that God exists before you can believe in him and trust that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? So we can say that belief that is a necessary but not sufficient means to be saved. Salvation requires belief in and the work of his son on the cross. Now why, why is this important? Here's what we see today. Studies show that when a person raised in the church leaves the home, between 60 and 75% of them fall away, quote-unquote, from their faith. Now, my personal view is that we're not talking about them losing their salvation. Some of them just simply wander aimlessly for a while and then come back to the fold. However, there are some who renounce their stated belief and reject Christ as Savior and or continue in the practice of what they have been taught is sin. And I think there's no other conclusion. John tells us it becomes evident that they were never saved in the first place, and they need salvation now for the first time. Question, whatever the case is for this high percentage, this high fallout, is it possible that for some they falter in their belief question it, or never actually believed because they did not understand the reason why they believed what they said they believed at the encouragement of well-meaning parents and teachers. Peter tells us that we are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. I just noticed on your sheet there's a typo. It should be 1 Peter 3.15, not 1.15. I missed that. Okay, another hypo. Person grows up in the church and makes a profession early in life, graduates from high school, goes on to the workplace or off to college. For perhaps the first time in his or her life, uh, she's confronted by a very different culture or cultures and attitudes that she never experienced before. Sound familiar, homeschoolers? Uh, and uh, she, of course, wants to make friends, and so she doesn't bring up the God issue in her discussions, at least not in the beginning. But then somebody notices maybe a necklace on, I mean, a cross on her necklace or a Bible on her table. And they, it gets around that she is religious. And so these new acquaintances, they might be fellow students or work associates or professors, might intellectually challenge her or even ridicule her with statements or questions like, do you really believe in miracles? Didn't you know the Bible is full of inconsistencies? Do you think you know the truth about everything? 
Do you think people should be stoned to death for having sex outside of traditional marriage? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery and racism? How could a loving God allow so much pain and suffering? And didn't Jesus say, never judge? Christians do it all the time. They're just hypocrites. And if her response is, well, you know, I'm not really sure, not much of a witness. Lame responses are not persuasive. She has failed to be ready to give a defense. She needs reasons for the hope that lies within her, but she was never given that foundation to explain why her belief matches reality better than any other worldview. So it's going to be pretty hard for her to even think about bringing up the gospel into that conversation. Being a believer in today's culture can be intimidating in a culture that is so self-focused that it rejects the notions of all absolute truth and is so in your face about their truth. Our Christian is quite likely to retreat with her tail between her legs as she has learned to keep her mouth shut and her faith to herself. Worse, she might even question her own faith. Maybe what my parents taught me really isn't so. Maybe they're right. It's just a myth, a fairy tale, opiate of the masses, a hammer to make people conform and feel guilty if they don't. So understanding why something is true is very, very important. But you first have to start with a very basic question, seems self-evident, does truth and God exist? So to summarize here, all of us have to first understand that there is truth because God gave us the faculty of reason. We've got to believe that in that personal God who inspired God's, God's word, which is the source of that truth. We cannot allow the culture to shape and mold us. There are things we can learn from the culture, but we must be equipped to change the culture. And in that process, we've got to listen to and learn from other perspectives because none of us are omniscient, none of us are perfect. And we may be wrong about some issues, but we've got to be ready to give grace to differences on the finer points of life that may not be essentials. You know, a lot of this has been about culture and what kind of culture is best. We don't want any particular ethnic culture that's pretty irrelevant. We don't want an American culture. We want a biblical culture and that will solve everything if the church will take a stand, will equip itself, and be salt and life. Remember, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty and patience. In all things, love. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. And you have given us the gift of reason. You have given us your creation which makes clear that you are there and you are not silent and you have given us your word to direct our lives and guide us. You have given us your spirit 
to prompt us to apply that word. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to understand that there are differences in cultures, both horizontally and vertically, to be patient and tolerant of those differences, to be willing to sit down and talk with people and listen to them and learn from them and then be encouraging them to look to you for the truth. Father, this is a tall task because we are all prideful and selfish and we don't want to let go, but we must. We must let go and give you the reign within our lives to bring about reconciliation within the church first. And then we will be prepared to reconcile man to God as your ambassadors. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.